Well, I am so glad that you are here today. My name is Jeremy, and I am the campus pastor here for our Canton campus. Um, our senior pastor, we are a part of a, a, an existing church. We are a new campus of an existing church. Our, <coughs> excuse me, our Marietta campus is in Marietta, uh, which makes sense, and now our Canton campus is in Canton. Uh, but we have two campuses. Our senior pastor is Dr. Mark Walker. He was here last week, and he will be here uh, every other week um, speaking and, and just kind of providing uh, his leadership in, in these moments. And then the other weeks that you get stuck with me. And, uh, but I'm so glad that I get to, um, get to kind of speak from my heart today. Um, we've been planning for a while this, this series that we would open with, um, this, this idea of what we would be talking about over the first you know, six or eight weeks that we even existed as a church and, and as we got into that, as we started in the planning process, I can't tell you how excited I was about today. Because I believe that today what we're going to talk about is one of, if we ever kind of grasp it, if it ever takes root in our heart, it is a life-altering, life-defining kind of principle and truth. But I have to tell you, Pastor last week was talking, he used several sports analogies, which I'm totally fine with, because um, I love sports. But I, I'm, I thought I'd kind of start with one. When I was about uh, maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, I made the all-star team for baseball and, uh, love baseball started when I was like three and a half, which was the earliest that you could start where we were living at that point. And I played all the way through some college baseball and, um, I love the game of baseball. So I was like 10, 11 years old and I made the all-star team and I was pumped. So I'm, I'm playing shortstop for our all-star team. And, and if you've ever played baseball, you've ever, if you watched the world series recently, you saw Albert Pujols from the St. Louis Cardinals do the exact same thing I'm about to describe. Bases are loaded in one of our games. And there's a ground ball. I'm playing shortstop. We've called the infield in, so I'm kind of at the edge of the grass. So the idea here, we've got less than two outs. The idea is that I would catch the ground ball and immediately throw it home so that the catcher could catch the ball while standing on home plate for a force out so that that run would not score. We could get to two outs, and then we could have a force at any base. Very easy play as it relates to just catching the ball, throwing it home. The timing of that sometimes puts a little pressure on you. But you're just catching ground balls like you've done every day in practice. You're just throwing it to the catcher. Every single day at the end of practice, this is how we ended. This was the last drill. Everybody would come in, you'd catch your ground ball, you'd throw it home, and then you'd run to the dugout. Every single day. So I, I kind of move up to the edge of the grass. There's one out. I'm ready. I'm playing for Shades Mountain All-Stars right outside of Birmingham. We're playing against Hoover All-Stars. We hate them. They're Russia. We're the U.S. I mean, it's like Cold War, 10 years old. But I mean, you know, you understand what I'm saying. So I mean, we're, we're playing against Hoover. We're Shades Mountain. There's pride on the line here. And, and, and the ground ball comes right to me. I mean, you couldn't script it any better. If I want the ball. I want it coming to me. And I come in. I field the ground ball. And I stand up to throw it home. And out of the corner of my eye, I see the runner from second running to third. And he stops. And so instead of immediately firing at home, I stop and look at him. And then I turn and throw it home and miss him by a step. And we lose the game. Game's over. Devastated. I don't cry a lot. Well, it's a lie. I cry a lot. But I cried that day. You want to get me? I got to have extreme home makeover about once every two or three weeks just to kind of soothe my soul. Watch kids cry. I cry. We're good to go for a little while. But I'm telling you, that day I cried a lot because I felt like, man, I knew what to do. I knew the correct play there and I blew it. And, and if I was talking to my seven-year-old son, Cooper. I was talking to him today, and I was talking about second chances and things that I would go back and do differently in my life. But this, this is not, it has no eternal value. But if I could go back to one sports moment in my life and change it, do it over, it would be that moment. Because I knew what to do. 
I knew the correct play, but I hesitated. I was distracted by something that I shouldn't have even been paying attention to, and I didn't make the play. Now, here's the, here's the concept, here's the principle for our lives, is that we have those kinds of moments throughout our life. We have the moment where we know what's right. We know what we're supposed to do, but we take our eyes off of what we're supposed to be doing or we get distracted or something else happens. We don't execute the way that we plan to, the way that we know to, and we just, we just blow it in that moment. We just miss it. We don't do what we're supposed to do, and we miss our opportunity in that moment. And that happens a lot of times. It's sometimes very, very small. Sometimes it's only a 10-year-old all-star game, and that's all that it's about. Sometimes it's about marriage. Sometimes it's about our finances. Sometimes it's about our jobs. Sometimes it's about other relationships that we have in our lives. We know what to do. We know what's right. We know in that moment exactly what we're supposed to do. But something happens. We get distracted. Maybe we're not concentrating. Maybe we're not focused on the things that we need to be focused on. And in that moment, we don't do what we're supposed to do and we blow it. And here's the problem. Pastor Mark presented to us last week this idea right out of the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1 that we are chosen by God. That even in our lives when other people do not choose us and we get skipped over for teams, we don't get the promotion at work, we don't get to marry the girl we were wanting to marry. I mean, whatever it is that you think you've missed out on being chosen, no matter how that plays out in your life, God has chosen you. And that's an incredible theory. It's incredible truth out of scripture, but it's not really been applied to our lives sometimes because we believe that we have blown it so bad at some point in our past that surely God would not choose us. I mean, our families, our friends, they've labeled us with whatever it was that we did in our past and we we legitimately feel like we are scarred. That we wear this scarlet letter of some kind, this definable label of some kind, and they look at us and they go, yeah, there's so-and-so and he did that. Yeah, there she is. She blew it big time when she did this. There's what's his name. He has this ugly scar attached to him. And so trying to live out this life of being chosen by God and living in that truth and living in that reality is very difficult for us because if our friends and our family have labeled us like that, then sometimes when we even look at ourselves, that is what we see. It's our identity. It's the the, the reality of what we believe about ourselves. And so the idea that God would choose us, that God loves us, is lost on us. And so today I want to kind of talk about this a little bit. I want, to, I want to dive into this idea that even if you feel like you've blown it, I mean huge or really, really small, that that does not disqualify you from living this chosen, God-centered, purpose-driven life that God really does have in mind for you. If you've got your Bibles, flip to Ephesians chapter 1. Pastor mentioned last week that we're going to be kind of walking through the book of Ephesians this entire year. We're not going to go verse by verse necessarily. We're not even going to just go straight through. But Ephesians is an incredible letter. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to the church at Ephesus, which is the city there. Uh, and Pastor did a great job last week. You can go on our website and, and listen to that if you'd like to. But uh, he did a great job kind of helping us understand Ephesus And so Ephesians 1 is kind of the beginning of this letter. So we're still very, very early in this letter that he has written to these people, to this church that he had spent two or three years with in person. And now he's in prison. And so he's writing to them. And we have here in Ephesians chapter 1, today we're just going to be looking at verses 7 and 8. And this is what it says. It's going to be on the screens if you don't have a Bible. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I want us to read it again. They're going to put this up on the screen. And I want to just define a few terms as we kind of go through this verse. Because some of these you probably understand. No problems. But I want a few, a few of these terms. Let's just kind of pull them out and look at this. So in him we have redemption. The first thing that I want us to kind of look at is what does the word redemption mean? Redemption is to be released due to the payment of a ransom. So you are redeemed or, or redemption is this act of being released when there's a ransom that's due for you. So you can look at the idea of being um, in slavery. You can look at the idea of being like a prisoner of war. You can look at the idea of being kidnapped. And, and you see that someone along the way had to do something to bring about your release. They either paid a sum of money. They came and they traded. Maybe as you, if you look at the government or, or even really great movies about government that are not so much true. Just they traded something. Somebody just went in guns blazing. Whatever it was, there was a, a ransom paid. Something that replaced you so that you could be brought out of that relationship. Now the reason that this is important is in John chapter 8 and it's going to be on the screen you don't have to flip there but John 8:34 Jesus is talking and it says Jesus answered them truly truly I say to you everyone who practices sin is uh, is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is is a slave to sin. So the idea being here that the reason in Ephesians 1 that Paul is saying to them like we've We've received redemption. The reason that that's important is because if you are practicing sin, you are a slave to sin. It's not just like that we just kind of flirt with sin. It's just something that we do. It's just really, we, we literally are enslaved by that sin when we begin to practice sin. And so Jesus is explaining this to, the, to his followers here in this passage in John 8. So when Paul is referencing this, these people understand that this is not something that we're just talking about, oh, I told a little white lie. We're talking about practicing a lifestyle of things that holds you captive away from a relationship with God. That you are enslaved by this sin lifestyle. So redemption is a payment of some kind to release you, that ransom uh, that releases you from that. All right, so jump back to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's define another term right at the end of that. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. What are we talking about when we say his blood? Well, the his here is Jesus, all right? And the idea being that Jesus' blood, is it, this is in reference to the cross, all right? Because before the cross, before Christ came, there was still a need for blood. We have the law of the Old Testament, and the law kind of gets a bad rap. I, I, I talk about it all the time. I, I used to say all the time, like, if you're having trouble sleeping, just go read the book of Leviticus. You will be out like a light, and sometimes that's a little dishonoring to the word of God because the law is this incredibly like vivid portrayal that without Christ, you're going to fall short. Like there is nothing that you can do, even though God stipulates to us all the, all the things through the children of Israel that he wanted them to do to try to stay in right standing with him. No matter what they did, they always were going to fall short. But what they were required to do is bring sacrifices to the temple. They were supposed to come uh, regularly. Sometimes it was annually. Sometimes it was different feasts throughout the year. And they were supposed to bring some animal, depending on what the crime was, what the punishment was or whatever, to, to have that animal killed so that the blood would atone or pay that penalty for their sin. But I want us to read. Now, this is going to be, you're going to have to really lock in here for like two minutes. We're going to read the first part of Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, we're referencing back to this Old Testament idea of the law. And I just want to read this. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. 
The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Talking about the law is, is pointing towards Christ, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? Talking about the sacrifices. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Now stop right here. This is the idea that we have here. They continued to bring sacrifices to atone, to make right the things that they had been doing. And even though they came and they killed a lamb, they killed a sheep, they killed a bird, whatever it was that their, their sin required them to bring, even though they did that, they still felt guilty. There was something that didn't complete that transaction in their life. And so they still felt guilty. Look at this in verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now listen right here. Maybe you don't use bulls and goats. If you do, we probably need to talk later. But if you still use bulls and goats, that's, that's your business. Go Have great under the old covenant there. All right, I'm choosing to accept Christ as the sacrifice that atones for sins. But maybe you don't use bulls and goats. But what is it in your life that is a constant reminder of the guilt of your sin? What is it that you have that you carry with you that you, you always come back to and it constantly reminds you of the things that you did in your past? Because what should have been this freeing uh, moment of bringing sacrifice to the temple and just being set free by that, that's kind of the idea here of what Christ would eventually do. But instead what happens is they would come every year and they would bring another sheep and they would have that sheep lay out there in front of the priest and the priest would sacrifice that animal and the blood would run down and you know what it did? It reminded them that seven years ago, they just blew it big time. And every single year, they got to come back and bring another sheep as a reminder of their past. I don't know your life story. I only know mine. But if there was a certain day every year that I had to come and relive the awful moments of my past, I, I, I'll be honest, that would be pretty disheartening. That would be a big struggle for me emotionally that I could never get past my past. It was a constant reminder of what they had done. Verse 8, we're going to skip ahead. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's huge. So instead of bringing it every year, Christ came to replace the annual ongoing ritualistic sacrifice. And once for all, he was the one-time need of a sacrifice to replace your sin and guilt. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Listen to this. This is huge. Verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Again and again, the priests would have the same sacrifices being presented and they would attempt to take those things to make right the sins of the people. And what God gave to us is a once for all time sacrifice 
that negated our need to constantly relive and reopen the wounds of our biggest mistakes. And for some of us, that could be life-altering. Maybe it's not bulls and goats for you. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your issue is, but something that you have in your hands, something you have in your life, every time you look at it, it reminds you what you did. Every time you look at it, you, you think, man, that was the worst day of my life. And I have to relive that. But guess what? No, you don't. Christ came as a once-for-all-time sacrifice. And He performed the duty that none of those bulls and goats could do. He was able to forgive sin. And I guess my, my question for us this morning, if we just look at this idea, is what is it that you have to get past? What is it that is this constant reminder? What is it that the enemy is using in your life to keep you trapped in a lifestyle that does not allow you to experience the love of God? I mean, as we sing these songs and we say, thank you for the way that you loved us, what is it that keeps you bound, enslaved, broken down? Because you're constantly reminded you've never really accepted. And I'm not just talking about praying a sinner's prayer. I'm talking about truly living in the love of God, accepting the sacrifice, the once for all time payment that Christ gave to us on the cross. Let's jump back to Ephesians 1 just for a moment. We're almost done here. Ephesians 1, as we jump back in, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Of all the words we're going to define, this is probably the one that we're all most familiar with because it's one we use in everyday language. I don't know how you would drop redemption into your everyday language or the blood. But forgiveness, we, we would drop that in and that, that's totally understandable. And it's defined this way, release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon of sins, letting them go as if they had never been Committed. Now, some of the ways that we forgive others is not really forgiveness. Because we say, hey, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget it, you low-down, sorry, scum. No, we, that's how, we may not say that, but that's how, we, that's, that's how we do, right? But what this idea of forgiveness here, what we are receiving from Christ because he redeemed us and redeemed our sin and paid the ransom through his blood, is that we are receiving from him forgiveness as if it never happened. Again, let's go. How free would we feel if we ever got to that place where we could understand that kind of forgiveness? Look at this in the, in the book of Nehemiah. It says that they refused, talking about the children of Israel, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. This, I'm telling you, I get this sentence right here is unbelievable. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. That's my story right there. I'm a stiff-necked person who did not appreciate the wonders that God had performed in my life. And yet God is quick to forgive. He's abounding in love. He's slow to anger. You want to know why some of us have trouble reading this verse or believing this verse? Because that's not how we view God. God to us, for better or worse, is Zeus on a chair throwing lightning bolts when we mess up. 
we have this warped view of who God is and what God is. So that when we, we mess up, we make a mistake, we do blow it, we have this terrible, I can't believe I did that. We are so afraid of the judgment of God that we lose the abounding love that exists in him. How do you view God? How do you approach God? Your perspective of this right here, your understanding of this, your grasp of this in your heart is life-altering. It changes everything about the way that you approach him. It changes everything about the way that you worship him. It changes everything about the way that you pray to him. How do you view God? Is he ready to forgive? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. Back to Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. The riches of God's grace. Look at what we define this as. An overabundance of that which produces joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. You know what that is? That's describing my wife right there. Is she in here? Yeah, awesome. Okay. No. The word grace there is legitimately that which produces joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. That's the word grace. That's what the word grace is that's being used here in Ephesians 1. It sometimes is defined as favor. It sometimes is defined as thankfulness. It sometimes is defined as love. But this grace that is extended to us is that which produces joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. And the riches of God's grace is this overabundance that he lavishes on us. Here's the, I'm simple-minded. Here's the way this makes sense. If I sin and it's $5 worth of sin, God gives me $5 million worth of grace. He doesn't just pay the penalty. He doesn't just forgive the sin. He lavishes on me an overabundance of freedom and forgiveness for that act. He more than pays the price once for all time. I got to kill no more bulls or goats. He lavishes on me his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And in my life, when I realize that, when I apply that to me, it produces joy, peace. It produces loveliness. How many of you in your life could describe yourself as having loveliness? Some of you. I've met you. I've met some of you. And that's what's produced when we accept the grace of God. So let me ask you this. If you truly believed this, maybe you're not there yet. And I understand that. You've got a lifetime of being beaten down by a bad decision in your past. But if you ever got to the place where you believed this, if you believed that even though you'd made a mistake, even though you'd blown it, even though you had a season of time where every decision was wrong, If you truly believed this and you heard today that God would give you a second chance, how would it change your life? I mean, if if for the first time ever or the first time in a long time you could remove that label, that scarlet letter, you could remove this identifier about who you are that you have carried forever and ever and ever, how would it change your life? How would it change the way that you interact with other people? How would it change the way that you interact with God? 
if you believed that God genuinely would give you a second chance. And I'm not talking about, yeah, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget it. I'm talking about a clean slate. I'm talking about he has redeemed you and bought you out of a slavery of sin. Through his blood, Jesus Christ, who is a once for all time sacrifice. He has forgiven you as if it never happened. And he has lavished on you more grace than you even deserve. If you could ever get that, what would it change in your life? My favorite character in the Bible, other than Jesus, I think you have to say that. But other than Jesus, my favorite character is David. Our oldest son, Cooper, his middle name is David because... I mean, it, it, I love the story of David. And if you look throughout Scripture, you see that there are a ton of messed up folks. I mean, Noah was a terrible drunk. Moses was a murderer. I mean, there, there are countless examples. Paul killed Christians. But I don't know that anybody's quite as bad as David. I mean, David had an affair with a married woman. And, you know, maybe some of you have done that. But did you ever kill their spouse just to cover it up? Anybody? No? Yeah? If you don't want to raise your hand right now, I totally understand. I can... <laughs> David has an affair. And then her husband is out fighting. Because if you read the first part of this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you, what you see here is that it's the springtime when kings go out to war and David's taking a nap. I mean, if I could just land right here for a moment, you kind of get in trouble when you're not where you're supposed to be. Hello. All right, so... David has an affair. And then he says, hey, send Uriah back. This is Bathsheba's husband. Uriah comes back, and it's his plan that Uriah would go and and lay with his wife. And he doesn't. He sleeps at the, the door of King David's palace. The next night, David gets him drunk to hope that he would go back and lay with his wife. Because she's already told David, hey, I'm pregnant. Uriah that night still won't go home. He says, hey, how can I go home? My my brothers are out fighting. And so David sends him back with a letter to give to the general that says, hey, when the fighting is the fiercest, when it's the worst, send Uriah to the front line. And when it gets terrible, pull everybody back but him. And Uriah dies. Word is sent back to David. He brings Bathsheba to the palace to marry her, to try to cover up his sin. And then God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. He says there's two men. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. And the rich man has everything that he could want. The poor man has one little lamb. That lamb eats with him at his table. He sleeps in his bed at night. It's the only thing that the poor man has. And he said one day a traveler comes to visit the rich man. But instead of taking from his surplus, taking from all the blessings of God, he goes to take the lamb from the poor man so that he can have something to present to the traveler. And David is so angry. He said, who is this man? I want to kill him. He said, he will pay four times over what he has done. And Nathan points his finger in David's face and says, it is you. It's one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible when Nathan said, God has given you everything that you could want. And if it were not enough, he would have given you more. But look what you've done. And David in that moment is overcome with grief and conviction And he says, you're right, I've sinned against God, please forgive me. And Nathan says, you're forgiven, but there's a penalty for your actions. And so David goes in after Bathsheba delivers the baby, and the baby falls ill, gets sick. 
David goes in and, and he doesn't shower. He doesn't eat. He, he rips his clothes. He, he, he's pleading and begging God, God, let this baby live. And eventually the baby dies. And the servants don't want to tell David. Because they, they say, man, when the baby was alive, look at how terrible he was. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't shower. He's ripping his clothes. I mean, look at, we don't want to go tell him. And David sees them talking and he goes to them and he says, hey, the baby is dead, right? And they said, yeah. And he gets up and he goes and takes a shower. He sits down, has them serve him food, puts on clean clothes. And the servants say, we, Master, we don't understand. We don't understand why you did this. When the baby was still alive, you, you, were, you were pleading with God. Now the baby's dead and you're just acting like everything's fine. And, and David says, well, what am I supposed to do? The baby won't come back to me. I'll go to him one day, but the baby won't come. What am I supposed to do? And then he goes and he lays with his wife again. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to a son. The baby's name is Solomon. When they send word to Nathan, Nathan names the baby Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. Out of the same adulterous, sinful relationship, there's a gift from God that's birthed. And here's the truth and the reality for every one of us in this room this morning. No matter what you've done in your life, there may be consequences to pay. Figuratively, the baby may have to die to pay for your sin. But the eternal justification of what you've done, you in right standing with God was taken care of on the cross. You don't have to pay that price anymore. God did that for you. When he sent his son to redeem you through his blood and forgive you as if it never happened. And to lavish on you grace that produces in you joy and loveliness. God's giving you a second chance. He's giving you a second chance. No matter what you've done. No matter what you think you've done that is unforgivable. No matter what you think you've done that labels you. That everybody around you, that's what they see when they look at you. Guess what? God doesn't. And as you live in the grace and forgiveness and redemption of God, I believe that it changes the way others see you. And you know how I think it starts? I think it starts when you begin giving other people second chances. You give them a second chance to see you for who you are. You give them a second chance when they've done something wrong to you or they've done something wrong to God because you don't label them. God is a God of second chances. And I don't know what you came in with today. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your situation of life is. But guess what? Even you can have a second chance with God. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's something huge. But whatever it is that you believe has kind of trapped you, you are reminded every time you come into a service like this. You can't really sing out loud. You can't really lift your hands. You can't really clap even though you want to. You can't engage. When you sit down to read your Bible, you are overcome with the weight of the law. Guess what? The price has been paid. Guess what? You are redeemed through his blood. You are forgiven as if it never happened. God is a God of second chances. And I believe that as we leave this place today, that more so than just walking out of this building 
and saying, hey, come and be a part of this thing because, man, we, we sing together and we open God's word. I believe that the best thing that we could do to impact this community is just be a people that administers God's second chance grace to others. There are so many people outside of this building that just need a second chance. And if we are a people that walks out and administers the grace of God, we point them to the redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is life altering. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. In a second, they're going to sing a song and we're just going to kind of sit here in the presence of God, but we're not going to sit just idle. When you walked in, you received, along with your bulletin, a little bookmark. It's red. It's got the scripture that we read today, Ephesians 1. You've also got a pen. And if you choose to do so, when they begin singing, I just want you to flip that over where there's some white space. I just want you to write whatever it is that you need a second chance for. Maybe you've prayed a thousand prayers asking God to forgive. Guess what? He forgave you the very first time you prayed it. But now you just need to live in that forgiveness. Maybe you have never prayed a prayer. Guess what? When you acknowledge to God that you need him to forgive and redeem those moments and others in your life, he does it. Maybe you have a relationship that you need God to redeem. You need a second chance in that relationship with a friend or a family member, a spouse, a child. Just write their name. Maybe there's a sin issue. Maybe there's an addiction. Maybe there's a decision in your past that it's not even sin, but it's just something you feel like it has altered the course and direction of your life. You just flip it over to that white space and you just write that down. Nobody's going to see this but you. You can slip this in your Bible. You can slip it in your wallet. You can slip it in your purse. And my prayer is that every time you're thumbing through there looking for a scripture, you're reminded that the price has been paid. Every time you're looking through your wallet for a, a dollar bill, every time you're looking through your purse for some your keys, I'm praying that every time your fingers touch that, you are reminded that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and that according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us, that we have a second chance. So maybe you just kind of sit there with your eyes closed and you're just thinking about meditating on the goodness of God, that he would do this for even you. And at some point, I encourage you just flip that over and you just write whatever it is that you, you need God to give you a second chance for. I'll come back and close this with prayer in just a moment. Yeah, we thank you so much that you are a God of second chances. In a world that isn't really good at that. I thank you this morning that that's what you give to us. No matter what we've done. God, we believe in that. We need that. We crave that in our lives. And God, whatever it is that's written on these these cards that they're going to take home. Somebody's name, a relationship that's broken. God, would you just breathe second chance life into that relationship? Wherever there's sin or a habit, an addiction, a pattern of sin that enslaves us. God, we just pray for your freedom to abound there. To allow us to live for you. Whatever has shaped us, labeled us, identified us. God, would you just give us a new name? 
Would you name us and allow us to live in that name, the beloved of the Lord? That out of even broken pasts, out of even stories that aren't pretty, that God, you redeem those stories for your glory. And we are a walking testimony of your grace. I pray, God, as we leave this place this morning, that we walk out of here as people of second chances. And that, God, we would be your hands and your feet, handing that off to those that need it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.